0: be new to you, but in fact, it has become more and more common for Christians, religious people, church-going people, to think of our salvation experience and to talk about it in terms of a story. It's a tale of your journey to God, your journey with God. And if this is true, and I think it is, this is a story that's worth telling and retelling over and over again. After all, everyone likes a good story. And the best stories, my favorite stories, whether I watch them in the movies or read them in a book, I watch or read over and over again. And each time I do, I watch a movie a second or a third or to the umpteenth time, or read a book again for whatever time, I either learn something new I find I relish or enjoy the pleasure of the story even more. Of course, salvation is the best story of all, but many believers struggle with their story of salvation, and I think there may be a few reasons for this. Maybe you struggle with your story of salvation because you're actually trying to live or to tell two different stories. There's my church story, and then there's my... Personal story or my home story. Maybe you don't like your story. So, like on your phone, every new uh, phone update that I get, my ability to edit pictures gets better and better. I can't remember the last time I carried around a camera, and in particular, there's there's apps that you can get that can take out the blemishes of the on the faces of the people in the photo. You know. Warts and acne and scars and all those things. So we we retouch our photos. Maybe that's what you do with your salvation story, like this photo app that removes the blemishes, or maybe like someone would remove the sharp corners on a rough board. Maybe you're doing this to your salvation story, too. You don't like the story that you've got, and so you present a version of it to others or to yourself, Some people struggle with this part of their story thinking, you know, my story is in the past. And you forget that the salvation story is actually a living, breathing story. It's new chapters are being added all the time. Actually, God is currently writing your story even as you hear me speak right now. This sermon and your thoughts and reaction to it is part of your story of salvation I wonder what we can do to embrace and become better at telling the story of our salvation. I think at least part of the solution needs to include reading the psalms. The psalms, you see, in a poetic form, tell the story of salvation of various people and some few people over and over again in different ways. They concentrate on different parts of a person's life. Think of that as like a memoir. So we have snapshots of a certain section of people's lives in the psalms. And that, story of, that part of their salvation story gets told. Or some psalms tell the whole story of God's people going all the way, starting all the way back at creation and looking forward all the way ahead to consummated reality in the future. Some stories focus in the psalms just on the story of Israel and their exodus from Egypt and their wandering in the desert and their coming into the promised land. And some individuals get more, if you will, press in the psalms than others. David's one of them. In fact, almost all of the first 42 psalms in the Bible are either about David, written by David, or commissioned by David, concentrating, in many cases, on parts of his life story. And this morning's psalm, in Psalm 40, is no exception to that. In Psalm 40, we listen in to David's salvation story, or part of it, And what we're doing in listening to this story is we're learning to recognize what God is doing in my life and in your life through what he did in David's life. In that sense, we're reading ourselves into the story of God. Or we're writing God's story in our reading into our own lives. That's partly why I've called this series of sermons. We're gonna, in the end, we'll have about 15 or so psalms that will have been preached this fall. This the series I've called the Psalms of My Life. These are psalms that have made an impression on me. And that I want to make an impression on me. I want want these psalms to be more a part of my fabric, my, my being, my story. And in particular, The salvation story in psalm 40 is one of my absolute favorites maybe you've never read it or heard of it i remember the first time it really captured my attention was as a young pastor i heard another pastor a little older than me tell his story and he used psalm 40 as the basis of telling his whole salvation story isn't that isn't that great I can relate to Psalm 40, and I think you will too. But I've also found Psalm 40, and this particularly came home to me this week in preparing for this morning's sermon. I also find that there are parts of Psalm 40 that feel like they're just out of reach. I might never attain to some of the, the glorious ideas and experiences of this psalm. In that sense, Psalm 40 is not only something that I identify with at the moment, but I aspire to in the future. So I've entitled this morning's sermon, this is the 12th sermon in the series, Psalms of My Life, Your Salvation Story. Because that's what I want it to be for you. I hope by the end of the message this morning that you'll agree with me that yeah, this psalm, I want this psalm to be part of my salvation story. So that's my title this morning. And we're going to begin by reading the psalm together we're actually going to read it out loud kind of to make the point if, if, you, if you don't want to do that you can just listen to the others around you read but uh, please open your Bibles to Psalm 40 we're going to read all 17 verses out loud if you have an ESV I don't want you to sneak any King James in here that's going to mess us up but many of you have Bibles in your seats you can use that Bible if you want to use the ESV on your phone that's fine but we're going to read it out loud together Psalm 40, beginning at verse 1. So please join me and read together. Let's read together. Psalm 40 and verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds, and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame, who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. Oh my God, so far the reading of God's holy word, you didn't do too bad. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for the reading of Scripture. Thank you that it is life. It brings life to the dead, it shines light in our darkness, it heals the wounded, sick, it gives reviving to the weary. And it is what we need today, this portion of Scripture. So may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and reflections on each one of our hearts, Lord, may they be acceptable and conformed to your will for us, even now, Lord Jesus Christ, in your name we pray. Amen. As I think about your salvation story, I see it unfolding, if you will, in three stages. Many stories have chapters or A play has acts, and I'm thinking of this as three stages of your salvation story. The first stage in verses 1 and 2 that we've just read is from desperation to deliverance. We go from desperation in the first stage to deliverance. It doesn't sound desperate. In verse 1 it says, I waited patiently for the Lord, but don't be uh, deceived by that seemingly... uh, peaceful picture if we were to expand this the phil henry translation here is i waited and i waited and i waited i kept waiting i was intensely waiting it was like i was looking for even a a puff of smoke on the horizon as the tires were kicking up the dust i was waiting for the floorboards to squeak. I was waiting for someone to knock. I was waiting for the phone to ring. I kept refreshing my email, waiting for that thing to come in. I rebooted the computer even. I kept waiting. This is not an easy wait. It's because I was in the muddy pit, the pit of destruction, the miry bog, literally the the muddy mud bottom. I've walked through mud sections of of a path or of a road on a job site in the woods and the mud's so thick it's like three inches of mud clinging to the bottom of my boots. You can't even shake the mud off. And sometimes there's even a sucking sound when you step into certain patches of mud. This is a miry bog but this is a miry bog at the bottom of a pit. And you... You pull on the walls of the pit and it's smooth and it's too tall. And it's not like the movies where you can kind of MacGyver your way out with a little stick and, you know, a little effort. You are in there and there's no way out. That's why I said it's desperate. So it's, it's desperate because it's an intense waiting. It's desperate to quote the 12 steps. You hit rock bottom or mud bottom. And it's desperate because the only way out is to ask God for help. You say, well, what's what's so hard about that? Well, not so fast. Asking God for help is actually a big step for most of us. I don't mean just kind of formal prayers, I mean asking God for help. Help me, God. I can't do this. I'm stuck at the bottom of a pit, with three inches of mud on my boots, and there's no way out of this hole. It takes an act of the will to ask God for help. And while I don't want to chisel into that great paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility this morning, while it is true that only by God's grace and mercy that you can ask for help, you must ask for help. You must make a choice. I'm choosing to ask God for help. And God's response is deliverance. So this first stage is from desperation to deliverance. This word deliverance doesn't show up in the passage here. It shows up a little bit later in our psalm. But it, it's a common phrase or term in the Bible, and it's shorthand, it's a code language for Salvation. Deliverance means redemption, but it has a sort of a concrete feel because deliverance means I was here and he grabbed me by the scruff of the neck, by the shoulders, and he put me here. So it's a very vivid way of thinking about redemption or salvation. Joseph was delivered. He had that coat of many colors. He was pretty proud of it. His Brothers didn't like it, and so they plotted to get back at their little brother. One thought this, one thought that, and finally they decided, "Let's kill him." And everybody agreed, but one sibling says, "No, that's going too far. Let's just throw him in this pit and we'll leave him." And they did. But he was delivered. Now, I don't know if you're going to like his deliverance because the people who took him out of the pit was not like Jesus with the halo. It was some foreign traders who sold him into Egyptian slavery. Almost like out of the, what is it, the frying pan and into the fire or maybe out of the fire and into the frying pan, one way or the other. Being a slave doesn't exactly feel or sound to me like deliverance, but you've got to read the end of the story. Jonah was delivered too out of the belly of the whale. Now, that's pretty nice to be delivered out of the belly of the whale, but Jonah's deliverance also wasn't all that peachy by the end. It was just the precursor. It's really just the appetizer to the real story of Jonah. And if you want to read that story, I'll encourage you. Basically, Jonah got delivered out of the belly of the whale because he was such a knucklehead that he wouldn't do what God wanted. And so Finally, when he agreed to do what God wanted, God delivered him out of the belly of the well. but now he had to do what God wanted, which wasn't easy. He had to preach to a group of people he didn't think deserved to be saved. Then there's nothing like the deliverance of Jesus himself, who was brought forth from the womb of the earth. The clutches of death gripped him. Jesus was saved from death, delivered from death, by the power of the Holy Spirit and his own incorruptible life. And you know, as an aside, Christian baptism identifies you with that deliverance. So when we encourage you to be baptized, we're encouraging you to be identified with Jesus' own rescue from death. That's why the amount of water doesn't matter. It's, It's the meaning that matters. I'm identified with these waters, with the death, and resurrection of Christ. Well, that's stage one, from desperation to deliverance. Stage two is the big middle portion of our psalm, verses 3 through 10. And in this stage, we go from deliverance to delight. This shows that salvation and deliverance is never passive, it's never static. It doesn't have a period at the end of the sentence. It's more like an ellipsis or a semicolon or a comma. When you get delivered, you're delivered to something, to do something, to be someone, to make a difference. The technical word here is telic. So salvation has a purpose. Deliverance takes you somewhere and you're on a journey you enter God's story when you are delivered in a new way. Sometimes the theologians will say, you're not saved by your good works. You're saved for good works. You see, good works adorn a beautiful, priceless jewel. You can't improve its value, but you can point to it and say, this is valuable by the way we live our lives. So our lives are an adornment of the priceless treasure of salvation that God has given us from deliverance to delight. I was raised with this motto, maybe you've heard it, the attitude of gratitude. But it took some years under my belt and some hard experiences and having children of my own to really appreciate what this means. Let me illustrate it like this If you're given a precious gift, a a brand new car. Uh, I, I was visiting colleges in a particular well-to-do area. I went to get a cup of coffee that was way, way, way overpriced. And we pulled up to a, a yellow car next to us, and my mother happened to be with us, and we thought it originally we thought it was a taxi. This was a yellow Lamborghini SUV not a taxi. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. Now, if somebody handed me the keys to that, I'd definitely be grateful, wouldn't you? In fact, I might consider myself indebted for the rest of my life to the, to the guy or gal that gave me that car. But think of this. If instead of giving me that car, I had spent every waking moment of my mortal life trying to and attempting to destroy that car. Committing crimes unspeakable to carry out my wicked acts. And all the punishment, the accumulated punishment that I deserve for all of my rebellion and law-breaking, all of that, fell on some innocent fellow who never ever once broke the law. And then I'm given that car. Now that's going to inspire an attitude of gratitude. Because that's exactly what salvation is. Salvation is me defying God and rebelling against God and desecrating and blaspheming God and all of God's gifts and all of God's promises. The almighty and eternal God and the punishment that I deserve for those holy crimes falls upon Christ. And I get His eternal reward, which is salvation. Attitude of gratitude. So therefore, I delight in my deliverance. This is the, this is the second stage. When you, when you get that in your head, you're going you're to get... You're going to get a smile on your face. Your eyes are going to crinkle up. Your face will beam with delight. And there's too many ways that this psalm speaks of delight that we can cover this morning. I'm just going to mention a few of them. One is fresh praise. Verse 3a, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Fresh praise. Sounds good, doesn't it? There's lots of new things in the Bible and in our lives. There's a... And they all kind of... I feel good whenever I think of something new. Think of a new bride and groom. What a picture. It's fresh. Think of a new house. new carpet. A new car. A fresh coat of paint. Nothing like a fresh coat of paint works wonders. I'm particularly uh, excited about my newly planted grass. I got a new haircut this week. Do you like getting a haircut or a manicure? A new king in the Bible, or a new year is coming up. New wineskins, fresh fruit, not spoiled, thank you very much, and the best of all, is a new heart and a new spirit. Ezekiel eleven, eighteen, 18, and 36. And this new song is evoking all of that. Nothing like something new, especially a new song, to bring delight for your deliverance. We also see that we, we delight in our deliverance in that we have a wide witness look at the other part of verse three many will see and fear and put their trust in the lord i've shared this story before from the pulpit but when i was in college and a brand new believer my uh one of my roommates uh or i guess it was a suite mate or guy across the hall anyway they'd been talking about me and they they came up to me having had their little conference they came up to me and said Phil, we don't know what's wrong with you. Dude, you've changed. I just smiled and I said, yeah. I'm delighting in my deliverance. There's a wide witness. Many on my, on my dorm floor saw and a few began to ask questions about God and about faith. I don't know if any put their trust in the Lord as a result of, of my conversion as an adult in college, but I do know that I have had the privilege since then of leading many to faith in Christ, sharing the gospel. Some of you I've shared the gospel with, and you've heard how God has worked in my life to move me from deliverance to delight, and I've invited you, or maybe someone else invited you, who who shared the gospel with you, invited you to put your trust in the Lord. As I said, there's many in this section. Uh, look at verse 4. There's a blessed obedience. This is not a begrudging uh, man in verse 4. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man who makes the Lord his trust. This is a picture of the way God wants us to live our lives. Not turning to the proud. The proud are those who push, push, push. Always trying to get their way. The word for proud here is actually a shorthand for Uh, a a word that's used to describe Egypt. And Egypt is code language in the Bible for everything that you shouldn't do. I'm not saying like modern-day Egypt has some curse on it. I'm just saying in the Bible, Israel constantly went to Egypt to get horses, to get soldiers, to win battles, to get food, instead of trusting in what? Delighting in the Lord and trusting in God. For someone who's delivered, it's not hard, but it's a delight to make the Lord our trust, not turning to the proud or those who are liars, going astray after a lie, or going astray, meaning going off the path and following people who make lying a lifestyle. I love verse 5. Look at the childlike wonder here. You've multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. There's many nations around the globe that visit the Grand Canyon in northern Arizona, but there's one word, I may have said this before, that translates across all languages. It's this. Wow. The open mouth. Japanese, German, Brazilian, Australian, African, American. We all say the same thing. We will look on that massive feature. It's childlike wonder. Then this next one I want to share. uh, Scott and I were talking, actually, he's reading a book which I would commend to every man in the church. It's called The Disciplines of a Godly Man. Look at verse 6. I'm calling this sovereign surgery. This is part of our delight. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. My footnote here says, you have dug an ear for me. Here's what Kent Hughes says on this verse in his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man. Psalm 40, verse 6, this is a quote, contains brilliant metaphor in the original Hebrew text, which graphically describes or graphically teaches the need for listening. It literally says, ears you have dug for me. Digging suggests, quote, apart from God's work, a human head has no ears. You're a blockhead. That's funny. Like nothing can get in. (laughs) Eyes, nose, mouth, but no ears. This remarkable metaphor, he continues, occurs in the context of a busy religious performance, which is deaf to the voice of God. Sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have dug for me ears. The problem is that the psalmist religious colleagues had read about how to do the rituals of sacrifice, but they missed the message. God had spoken, but they did not hear. So what does God do? He takes a pick and a shovel and minds through the sides of the cranial granite, making openings through which his word can pass into our hearts and minds. I love that. Thank you, Scott, for that. The result of this sovereign surgery is that we're enabled to delight. You see, we're happy about the wrong things before we're delivered. But man, once God gets a hold of your life, we start celebrating The good things of God. Isn't that the truth? Then this one, I don't think it's controversial. Maybe you'll find that it is. 9 and 10 talk about evangelism. But it's not evangelizing the lost. It's evangelizing Christians. It's getting the saved saved. I've found, and this is not unique with me, I read this from one of... uh, Paul Miller's books, often it's the case that what Christians need is not discipleship but evangelism and what non-Christians need is not evangelism but discipleship let me explain see, Christians are so busy doing their religious rituals that they forget the good news that got them there in the first place, hence the gospel you need to hear the gospel and non-Christians if I may put it this way have heard the gospel, but the Christian life doesn't make any sense to them. So you kind of need to, if I can say, pre-evangelize and explain how this thing works. What is this tithing business? Why do you go to a building on Sunday with a bunch of other people and sing? That's weird. And so you disciple them, you explain, you teach, you instruct, even before someone embraces the gospel by faith, because sometimes that instruction will serve to reduce their barriers to faith in the first place. Hence, Paul Miller says, and I like this saying, we evangelize the found and we disciple the lost. We could go on and on, but this is stage two, from deliverance to delight in verses 3 through 10. Stage three, things get a little more serious. We go from delight to renewed dependence. It's as if in verses 11 through 17 that initial blush of salvation's joy wears off and we're in the realm of David saying, Lord, I'm struggling, I'm slipping, I'm falling, I've fallen. Restore unto me, what? The joy of my salvation. This is the third stage, the final stage in your salvation story. It's from delight to renewed dependence in verse 11. David is forced to remember... He says, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Why is he saying this? Well, I get the feeling David is in a bind here. This isn't exactly the first thing that comes to his mind, but it's the thing he knows he needs to say. He's bringing to mind. He's channeling his mind. He's he's forcing his mind on the promises of God, which he knows are true, in spite of his current experience. He's renewing his dependence on the Lord. And in verse 12, as he turns his gaze from God's steadfastness to himself, he sees that evils have encompassed me. (laughs) Literally, he's surrounded by evils. He's overtaken by iniquity. He's blinded by his trial. Literally, it's He cannot see, and they're more than the hairs of his head, and his heart is failing. (laughs) Where's the delight now? We go, in this stage of the story, I'm saying, from delight to renewed dependence. And then in verses 13 to 15 and 16, he engages in spiritual warfare. Renewed dependence, you see, thrusts us back into the battle. So he's praying for deliverance for himself, for his own welfare, in verse 13. He's praying for the downfall of his and God's enemies. Note well, David is praying that God would bring God's enemies down. Now this assumes a couple of things. It assumes that he's right with God, that he can identify God's enemies, not just people that he's angry at. Secondly, it assumes that God is... Chosen not to save them. You see, God can bring down his enemies any number of ways. He can convert them. He can deliver them. He can make an enemy into a friend. That's what he did with David. That's what he did in my life. Many of your lives he's done the same. But if he doesn't convert them, then he's asking that God would silence them and cause them to be impotent and may all of their plots against the Lord and against the Lord's people, may those plots be turned back upon them but in God's way and in God's time. We need to learn this this aspect of spiritual warfare. I'm afraid it's fallen out of favor. But he doesn't just pray for the, the downfall of God's enemies or their conversion. He also prays for the welfare of the church. Look at verse 16. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. God, may your people as a whole, may the whole whole of Mercy Hill Church, may the whole of of the PCA, may all the Christian churches in Glassboro and Pittman and in South Jersey and, and in New Jersey and across the United States and around the world, may your people stand for the Lord. I'm fighting a battle on my knees. I'm praying to God that the ministers won't pull punches, that That the elders and the deacons will will be on time and early for the for the person in need with the word in season. Neither a savior complex nor too busy. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And then he ends in this renewed dependence. Reminding himself and the Lord and us of who he really is. I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. Isn't that good news? He hasn't ignored you. Yes, you're poor and needy, but he notices you. He's with you, and he's actively plotting your blessing. But do not delay. Notice the the nerve here to end on that note. Do not delay, Lord. You know I'm poor and needy. You know I'm made of dust. I can only handle so much. I'm almost to the point of breaking. In fact, I am broken. Do not delay. Oh, my God. Well, in closing, I love the song Jesus by Rich Mullins, the deceased Christian musician and poet from the 90s. Here's how it goes. Jesus. They say you walked upon the water once when you lived as all men do. Please teach me how to walk the way you did because I want to walk with you. Jesus, they say you taught a lame man how to dance when he had never stood without a crutch. Well, here I am, Lord, holding out my withered hands and I'm just waiting to be touched. And then the chorus goes like this. Jesus, write me into your story. Whisper it to me and let me know I'm yours. Then these two verses, Jesus, they say you spoke and calmed an angry wave that was tossed across a stormy sea. Please teach me how to listen, how to obey, because there's a storm inside of me. Jesus, they drove the cold nails through your tired hands and rolled a stone to seal your grave. Feels like the devil's rolled a stone onto my heart. Can you roll that stone away? Jesus, write me into your story. Whisper it to me and let me know that I'm yours. As we go this morning, I want to challenge you in three areas. Number one, are you truly saved? You say your salvation story requires you in Psalm 40 to reckon with this question. Presumption is one of the worst sins. Now, I know that some of you struggle with assurance of your salvation, If you struggle to know that I belong to God, it may be an indication that you're not saved. You need to deal with that question. As I learned as a young Christian, just because you park an elephant in a garage doesn't make it a car. This psalm is a test for us to apply to our lives. Where is our salvation story out of line with what David's is here? Have you been delivered? Have you experienced from desperation to deliverance? Have you moved from deliverance to delight? And are you renewing your dependence on God in this season of difficulty in your lives? In particular, if there's sin that you're toying with or playing with or or have embraced, pulled it to your bosom, as the Bible says, then that's going to definitely affect your sense of of your salvation story. Secondly, I want you to tell your salvation story. Have you recently shared your story with someone, with your children, with your parents, with a spouse, with a friend? As you tell your story, and as every time Polly tells her story to me, I I can tell her story, but when I try to tell her story, she says, you got that part wrong, it was this. Oh, that's right, and why was that? She says, well, because of this. It's like, I didn't know that. And it's the same thing. She can tell my story, and there's lots of ways to tell our stories. She can tell many versions of my story. But it's not unusual when I tell it or when she retells my story that she learns something new as well. And finally, that new song, remember that, all the fresh things I mentioned? What's fresh in your, in your song today? What's fresh about your salvation today? What is God? doing in your life not last week last month when you were saved way back when what's being newly written into your life where is the ink still wet What's got up to can we celebrate that can we talk about that in a little plant you celebrate even the littlest tiniest buds or sprouts right above it's like ooh there's a little piece of green poking its head up above the soil what's going on in your life like that What are you thankful for in salvation? Let's talk about that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the salvation story of David, which has been recorded for us, for our use, not just as information on a page, but to inspire us, to challenge us, both to confirm us in our salvation and to help us to continue to pursue it with delight and even renew dependence I know, Lord, that some of us this morning are coming in on fumes and are having a great amount of difficulty for whatever reason. Perhaps even these difficulties include doubts or questions about the Lord. So I'm praying for that one, that you would not crush a bruised reed or a smoldering wick you would not extinguish. But Lord, if there's someone here who is proud or going after falsehood, who's left the path, I pray you would give that person no rest and no peace until he or she returns to the story which you are writing in, your, in their lives and in the world, which is to bring all things under your lordship and for your glory. And Lord, for those of us that, that are doing well, I pray we would be an encouragement to the flock, to the other members and attenders of this church. And we would indeed pray that all of us say along with all Christians around the world that great is the Lord it's in the Lord's name that we pray Amen Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast If you'd like to learn more about us please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org We meet every Sunday at 10am at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue Adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University, we'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.